Last week in our chapter of the story, we got to hear Jesus teaching his disciples about who he is and uh, questioning them about um, who they say he is. And the, uh, toward the end of that chapter, um, we read in Mark chapter 8 something that we're going to read again in chapter 9 and then again in chapter 10. Three different times Jesus warning his disciples, because we have reached this place, because we have reached the spot where you, tell, you are telling us who, uh, who I am, that you need to know now that the hour will come that the Son of Man is going to be turned over to the officials and he's going to have to die. And all three times they get confused. And so we've reached chapter 26 of the story and we have reached that hour. And we are at the hour where Jesus is being turned over. And so uh, I wanted to approach this chapter a little bit differently than what we have done in the past. Um, here in a second, I'm going to stop preaching for a second, and we're going to all go to Sunday school, okay? Um, and so you're going to be getting a lot of information, um, and I understand that. Our scripture references are going to be up on the board because we don't have time to read all of the things that the scripture says is happening during this hour. But we hit a point where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane after he has just uh, demonstrated what the Last Supper is and, and, and set the, the, the tone for communion moving forward. Um, he gets arrested, has to cut off a couple of ears from a couple of guys. They take him in the middle of the night to begin his trial. Now, in the scriptures, it gets a little confusing for us sometimes, I think, because it's not exactly ordered the way that we... like. It's not chronologically spread out for us, and not all of our Gospels cover every single bit of what the trials are. So I'm going to try to present that to you uh, this morning. Um, so we're going to walk through this. Jesus actually, in the Gospels, goes through six different official trials. Three of them are Jewish trials, and three of them are Roman trials. And so I'd like to quite literally walk you through these six trials. So we're going to start out with Jesus' first uh, Jewish trial. In the middle of the night from the garden, he gets brought to a guy named Annas. Now, Annas became high priest of the temple right after Jesus was born, but he only stays in office between the years 6 and 15 AD. The reason why he gets removed from office has nothing to do with the Jews. It has everything to do with the Roman government. The Romans believed that Annas was too violent in his leadership at the temple. They removed him from office for, quote, for imposing and executing capital sentences which had been forbidden by the imperial government. In other words, if you were a Jew and you wanted to accuse somebody and get him uh, legally killed, Annas was your guy that you brought him to. That guy was, uh, kill them all, let God sort it out later. That was his motif through this. However, he continued to be a presence and an influence amongst those at the temple. Annas had five sons, four grandchildren, and one son-in-law who all become high priest at some point in history. He has a legacy of this. He is a career high priest. Now, we also need to understand something as this trial begins, that 
the way the Jewish law worked is you had the Old Testament, which tells us what the law is, but then you had a bunch of rabbinical teaching throughout all of history that was sort of oral teaching, some things they began to write down, which taught you how to follow the what. Somewhere along the line, the rabbi's teaching gets so infused with the actual law that it gets confusing what was in the scriptures and what is it that the rabbi said. And so we're, we're kind of confused with this. This is important because Jesus is first brought before Annas in the middle of the night. And we read about this in John 18. At the beginning of this, Annas asks Jesus several questions or at least a couple questions. But he's asking him really about his disciples. What is it you're teaching your disciples? And Jesus responds to him by saying, you know, every single one of my teachings has been in public. I've been in the synagogues. I've been in the temple. They're public. If you want to know, just go ask. Just go seek it out for yourself. And there's at this point a Roman official or a, a Jewish official at the temple strikes him in the cheek and tells him this is not how we talk to the high priest. Well, we've got problems with this because Annas is not the official high priest. Matter of fact, we know from when you put all the information together, and this is where we go to Sunday school, that in this trial alone, this part of his first trial alone, that the Jewish officials break at least eight different laws in this trial. You see, the trials were supposed to be held in a place called the Hall of Judgment, which is in the temple area. Here, we are at Annas' palace. We are at his house. Um, it also requires a minimum of 23 judges to be there to hear this trial. That's not the case right here. Also, the defendant is not allowed to testify against himself. Um, it, there's a requirement of at least two eyewitnesses to testify, and their testimonies have to agree with one another. That's not what's happening right here. He also gets declared guilty by Annas. And there is illegal in a trial setting to have mockings, to have beatings, to have scourgings, or any kind of mistreatment before a verdict or a sentence is read. And so when this official strikes Jesus, it is a mistrial. And Jesus has every right to declare that at this moment. But he doesn't. Instead, Annas sends him to a guy named Caiaphas, and he's in front of a group of people called the Sanhedrin. We'll get to the Sanhedrin in just a second. Caiaphas is the official high priest of the time. On top of that, Caiaphas is that son-in-law of Annas. And so um, Caiaphas got his father-in-law kind of looking over him on this and kind of influencing him on this, and, and he's also got this responsibility here. Now, Caiaphas is in, uh, is in this position not because he's kind of work the line that you're supposed to as a Jewish high priest. He's in this position because the Roman government put him in this position. He stays in office as high priest longer than anybody else in all of history, and it's mostly because he's skilled at pleasing the Roman politicians and kind of keeping the Jews from rioting too badly. That's how you hold an office under a Roman government, is you keep the riots down to a minimum. And Caiaphas is a master at this. Now, we have this recorded in uh, all of the Gospels, but it is in Matthew and Mark's account that we see that the, the, the Jews around them are kind of rushing around to find some witnesses, and they find some false witnesses who come before uh, Caiaphas, and they say something like this, hey, this is the guy that said he's going to destroy the temple, and he's going to rebuild it here in just a few days. 
That's what, they're t- that's what they're testifying to. But even then, their wording isn't exactly matching up. They can't seem to agree on what the actual testimony is going to be. But that was enough for Caiaphas to start questioning Jesus, not about temple things, but he questions Jesus and says, are you really the Christ? Are you really the Messiah, the chosen one? And Jesus doesn't exactly respond to that, but he basically says, you know what? You're the one that just said it. You're the one that just said it. And Caiaphas does not respond in kind. Caiaphas does not respond in kind, and he shouts, this is it. This is blasphemy. Can't you guys see this? He's guilty. Now, this trial right here has violated at least 13 different laws that existed for Jewish trials at the time. See, the procedure is supposed to be this. The judges um, could get together, and they're supposed to question first for acquittal, then they make a case against why this guy should not be acquitted. And they never question him for acquittal at all. They just question him for guilt. And they're supposed to do this because it is of the highest importance that we don't punish a guy that's innocent. Also, all the judges present could argue for this man's acquittal, but not all the judges present could argue for his guilt. In other words, you can't have all of the the judges in in place there yelling guilt at this guy. At least one of them had to defend him. Jesus required legally a defendant. Legally, he had to have representation, and he has none of it. They only question him. He's representing himself. Furthermore, Caiaphas charges him with blasphemy. And legally, blasphemy could only be charged against someone if the name of God is said out loud by the one being accused. And Jesus never says those magic words. The closest we get is Caiaphas accusing him of being the Christ, the chosen one. Then, guilty verdicts were not supposed to be read the same day closing arguments are made. Sentencing is not supposed to be given on the same day that closing arguments uh, were to be made. Also, verdicts and Sentencing were not allowed to be given at night. They could only be given during the day, and this is happening in the middle of the night or the wee early hours of the morning at this point. And you could not give verdicts or sentencing the day before or the night before a festival. And the next day is when Passover is starting. In a capital case in which death is sentenced, it is illegal then for any scourgings or beatings or mistreatments of the one who's about to receive that penalty because death was supposed to be penalty enough. And once again, Jesus receives a beating. And it's at that point, Jesus could have had every single right to call for a mistrial. But instead, he sent in front of the Sanhedrin again. Now, this one is a little bit different. This is the next morning. It's kind of an impromptu trial, but he's in front of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin were a group of guys who were the officiants at the temple. There were 70 of them plus the high priest, so 71 in total, and that's to ensure when uh, verdicts are being voted on that there would be an odd number so there couldn't be a tie in the voting. And uh, so there's supposed to be 70 of them. Their job according to the Roman government, 
was to ensure that peace between the Jews and the Romans still existed. In other words, you got to make sure they don't riot. That's your job. If you want to keep a Sanhedrin in the Roman Empire, you keep them from becoming a mob. That, that's what you got to do. Their Jewish role was to, be, it was to act very, in a very similar way as our Supreme Court. They heard the federal cases, they heard the capital cases, and after their verdict and ruling, there was nowhere else to appeal. And so Jesus is in front of these guys the wee hours of the morning. Mark gives us just one verse about this. Uh, Luke mentions this in just a handful of verses. And they begin questioning him. This becomes a very brief, unofficial trial with an official verdict. And it's really weird, awkward, and illegal. But the procedure for uh, voting on a verdict is supposed to work out like this. That for the death penalty, it required voting done individually from those that make up the Sanhedrin, and it starts with the youngest, and they work all the way up to the oldest because they didn't want the younger, more impressionable uh, men of the Sanhedrin to be influenced by those that have been around for a little bit. And it was supposed to be a way to make sure that your vote is voting on the case, not you trying to kind of position yourself sort of politically within the temple. That didn't happen here. Also, there were no witnesses during this trial. There, only Jesus' testimony was considered during this trial. No evidence was presented during this trial, but a verdict was announced immediately, and we're now on the day, first day of the festival, first day of Passover. This would have been a perfect time for Jesus to say, you know what? It's within my rights for this to be considered a mistrial. But instead, the Jews go, okay, we need to have some kind of semblance of doing something that's right, so we're, going, we're seeking the death penalty. We can't do that during the Passover. Let's send him over to the Roman officials. So they send him over to a guy named Pilate. Now, we are familiar with the name Pilate, but Pilate was the guy that was the governor over Judea, um, which is where Jerusalem is. Um, and Pilate is a guy that his, his career aspiration is not to become governor over Judea. Um, I don't want to mess with that group of people at all. But he, he aspired to kind of work himself up the chain. He was working up the Roman company here. And so he was just kind of doing what he needed to do in order to impress the people that were ahead of him. So his entire job as governor is to make sure those Jews don't riot um, and to make sure that we kind of advance and I want to impress, impress my bosses here. So he's in front of, of Pilate. There's a problem, though. Because the Jews have a, uh, the accusation with, the, with which they're charging him with is blasphemy. There is no such thing as blasphemy in any of the laws in Rome. They don't care if you blaspheme the Jewish God. They don't care. So they have to come up with something different. So in this trial, they start accusing Jesus of this. They accuse him of misleading the nation. They accuse him of forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. And they accuse him of claiming to be king. Each of those would result in treason, and treason was punished by death. Well, it is at this point we have this famous exchange between Pilate and Jesus, who Pilate is just trying to figure out what's going on. We read in John 18, starting verse 37, Pilate said to him, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say I am a king. But for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, well, what is truth? 
And then the very next line, we see that Pilate says, I don't find any guilt against this guy. This is an innocent man. He has not committed these crimes against Rome. And he is amazed at Jesus' control and silence. And it's at this point when he says, I don't find any guilt against him, that Jesus could have said, yeah, trial's over. I have every right to step out of this trial. Well, Pilate feels the pressure then from the Jews, because remember, his job is to keep them at bay. Don't start a riot. So Pilate goes, I need some help with this. And he goes to a very unlikely source, and it's a guy named Herod. It's, specifically, it's Herod Antipas. And Herod and Pilate have a very weird history together, okay? Remember, Pilate's aspirations are to move up in position in the Roman government, in the Roman uh, political realm. And so he wants to demonstrate that he's a good governor, and so he starts a bunch of different programs and starts a bunch of different projects, and he starts a bunch of different services. Well, he doesn't get to declare how much taxes the people pay. He can only use the budget that is assigned to him. So he has to figure out ways to pay for this. One of the ways he pays for these projects that he is starting is by invading the temple, taking out money from their treasury, um, and using that to spend on the Roman government. This does not make Jews happy. Specifically, it doesn't make Herod happy, who is the Jewish political efficient of Judea. And so they are always at odds. It's always kind of one, one statement away from, okay, the riots are about to start. But if Herod wants to hold his position, he is going to keep the Jews at peace. Well, he brings Jesus before him, basically says, I haven't seen anything wrong with him. Help me out here. Help me figure out a way to kind of work this situation so we don't start this war in the middle of the empire. Well, in Luke chapter 23, um, Herod begins questioning him, doesn't really get any answers, and so they start beating him. And it's all really because they're trying to intimidate him into confessing that he's guilty. Like if they hit him hard enough, if they beat him long enough, if they scourge him enough, he's going to say, no more, no more, fine, I'm guilty, do whatever we can. But Herod doesn't find any guilt with him. But because he helped Pilate kind of put this together, we read in Luke chapter 23, verse 12, that Herod, Herod and Pilate from this point on become friends because before there was enmity between them. They have just made kind of political friendship here, and they're working together. So Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And this is where kind of the rubber meets the road for us. So he's back in front of Pilate. Pilate has announced there's no, he's not innocent, or he's not guilty, he's innocent. There's nothing we can charge him for. The crowd doesn't like hearing that. So Pilate says, hey, all right, here's your choice. You can either let this thief go, who we know is guilty, or we can let Jesus go. And they say, no, let, let the other guy go. We want, we want Jesus there. The mob disagrees with Pilate, saying that he's innocent. Um, and so Pilate does what Herod did. He begins to scourge him. He has Jesus beaten, trying to intimidate him into a guilty confession. And it's not working. He comes back. Look, this is an innocent guy. And the mob starts accusing Pilate and saying, clearly, 
you are no friend of Caesar's. Um, them are fighting words for Pilate. And so Pilate comes back, accuses Jesus uh, of claiming to be God. The crowd yells, crucify him, crucify him. And we see in this part of his trial, his third trial in front of him, that the accusations are changed against Jesus. And you can read this uh, in our Gospels. No witnesses are brought forward. No testimonies are heard except for private hearings from Pilate and Jesus. There's no defense that is provided for Jesus, which is required under Roman law. Innocence is declared both by Pilate and by Herod. And the crowd is yelling, crucify, crucify. And Jesus has every right to say, this is a mistrial. I should be let go. And legally, they would have had to do that. So the question becomes, why didn't Jesus claim his rights? Well, we see a lot of fallout happen from this trial, from these six trials. We see a lot of different things happen throughout history. We have, uh, we have Pilate, for instance. Man, from here on out, Pilate, uh, a little bit later, gets removed from office. One legend says that uh, he was so distraught that he ended up committing suicide. Another legend says that actually his wife ended up converted to Christianity, and later on he gets converted to Christianity. We have uh, Herod, who his career aspirations was to be a real king, not just kind of kind of a fake title that he puts on himself or that his family's put on himself. Um, but we see throughout history that Herod's nephew actually betrays him and they end up dethroning him. He ends up living a life of poverty up in France of all places because he wasn't able to lead in truth. Annas, his name's never mentioned again. The only thing we ever read about him later on is that he's assassinated about 30 years later. Caiaphas, he oversees not just Jesus' trial, but he ends up overseeing uh, a lot of different trials in the book of Acts, persecuting Christians. And he's ultimately then removed from office by another Roman official because he's clearly not able to keep the peace. And again, he is putting a lot of people to death, and the Romans don't like that. Joel Gregory says this, that in our efforts to see all these different things happening in the trial, what we're not seeing sometimes is ourself. And he writes, we often tend to romanticize the trial of Jesus, and that is to speak of its pain, torture, humiliation, and its illegality in a way that distances us from the trial. But we've never experienced anything like it. When we see the trial of Jesus, expediency, injustice, and agitated self selfish confusion, we can, we can paint ourselves into the picture of that trial. For in that hour, the Christ of God both exhibited this and conquered it by taking it into himself. In that hour, the night almost put out the light, but the empty tomb shows that principle will have the final word over expediency, that absolute justice will have the final word over malignant injustice, the composed silence and dignity of the eternal God will have the final say over the agitated and selfish confusion of man." Why didn't Jesus claim his rights for a mistrial and step back out into freedom? Because we were on trial. Because it would have been the only way to step into the greatest act of love and forgiveness that mankind has ever been able to experience. 
If he claimed these rights, we'd have no cross, and he knew that the cross was the absolute most vital thing that we can ever receive from God. Jesus didn't claim his rights because he loves you and I and wants to create a way for us to be with him. And so it's at this cross that we get to experience that kind of forgiveness and that kind of love. And today it's at the cross where you may, for the first time, get to experience that love and that forgiveness. And if you have a decision to make for that, man, we've got some people at our decision point who would love to pray with you about that because you will never receive a greater love and you will never know true forgiveness unless it's at the cross. And that only happened because Jesus laid down his rights, not for himself, but for you and I. If you have a decision to make, we're going to ask that you step toward that decision point. Would you stand as we sing this song?